Hello and welcome to the World Fellows podcast. My name is Emma Skye and I'm director of the World Fellows program at Yale. My guest today is Rehan Assad, a human rights lawyer from the Uyghur minority of China. Rehan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Emma. So Rehan, tell me about your childhood growing up in China. Um, so uh, I grew up in the Uyghur region of China, alternatively also known Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region, in short it's Xinjiang. Um, so this region, unfortunately now, like, you know, the Uyghur people and our story became synonymous with the concentration camps. But if you do believe, I had a pretty normal childhood, Emma, um, like everybody else here in America. I grew up in a family that very much valued education. Both my parents, um, they survived the cultural revolution um, in China. And, um, you know, this was pretty uncommon for their generation to get married in their early 30s. I think in any parts of the world, like back in the 80s, and they had to wait out until the Cultural Revolution is over to be allowed to go to and pursue college education. So by the time when my parents um, were able to get into college, it was already in their late 20s. And that's how committed they are. And growing up in that kind of family environment, I think this notion of like, anything can be possible. You should pursue education so much ingrained in me and my um, my brother as well. Um, so I have this wonderful brother who is like my best friend and growing up, we just love dancing. He's my dance partner. And as somebody who... Yeah, so tell me about like the young Rayhan. <laughs> the young Rayhan. you were, you know, playing around, <laughs> yeah. having dancing with your brother. Yeah. What did the young Rayhan want to be when she grew up? So Rayhan wants to uh, become a doctor, actually. Um, so like it was all about like helping people. But unfortunately, I think I had uh, some problems, my eyesight, that I couldn't be like in China when it comes to these things, especially for a medical profession, it's it's quite strict. But it turns out as I was growing up in middle school, I just developed this great sense of like I, I'm going to fight for injustice, against injustice and, and so forth. And also just going up, seeing a lot of like Hong Kong movies. Like you see this very much British style, like courtrooms where lawyers would be waving their arms and argue like on behalf of their clients. So zealously, it's very different, obviously, from the Chinese career. You sit down and you read from your notes. And seeing that, I was like, I want to be that kind of lawyer. So... Emma, you wouldn't believe, apparently when I signed off my yearbook in high school, I signed off as from your future lawyer, Rayhan Hazard, friend. <laughs> so that is how much, like, you know, in high school, I developed this, like, I want to be a lawyer. Um, right, it and was it's, already there in your mind. In my mind, yeah. all the terrible things started to happen. Exactly. Exactly. So tell, and, tell us about that journey. From wanting yeah. to be a human rights lawyer to actually becoming one. Yeah, and you know, um, just, you know, it. the one thing I really want to highlight is that, um, and you've lived in the Middle East, like so you understand how, like, this kind of culture is so, like, passionate. People are very communal. Neighbors know each other. And that's the kind of environment that I 
grow up and maybe that is like you know like when you're being a lawyer you're, you're basically being a lawyer for the entire community maybe that's something like in the back of my mind and you know like Uyghur people obviously we speak Turkic language we we speak our culture is different but also growing up in China I speak Chinese like I'm fluent in Chinese so I've been just blessed with this wonderful uh, language skills that I can connect with people from all different cultures like Turkic cultures I, I went to Turkey and like you know I would be talking to a, a driver and just have meaningful conversation or I could meet a Chinese person and I, and I start engaging in conversation. And for me, like, I really want to use my language skills, but also this cross-cultural understanding and appreciation for different cultures and coming from this place of humility and empathy to help clients. Um, so that's when uh, also just like trying to uh, very much follow the steps of my parents I decided they'll pursue education overseas, not so much in China. So after graduating from my undergraduate uh, schools in Wuhan, unfortunately, everybody knows Wuhan. undergrad in Wuhan. I was in Wuhan. If I told you like years ago, I studied in Wuhan, you're like, what is that? But now, now we, know. Wuhan. we know where Wuhan is. It's a large city. Um, so then I, I went to like Canada. So I went to a law school there. And from there, I ended up going to Turkey and I started practicing law. But also, like, you know, at that time, I realized that I'm also kind of like Americanized, if if that is a thing, or Westernized, um, to put it in a broader, like, North American context. I think um, what North American education does to you is it really develops this critical thinking about the world and also being able to challenge decisions like, you know, court precedents. And the, the legislation and finding creative ways to, to go about the law. And I think I, I would say I'm somebody who's really fascinated by the majesty of the law. And uh, being in Turkey, like I, I miss that North America, but I also like, you know, in Turkey, it's Istanbul, like it's a vibrant city. Here we are like dancing while we're eating. Like that's my Uyghur culture. Like, I mean, I go to American parties, nobody's in Uyghur parties. Like, I would be dancing with my dad, like I would be dancing with my mom. Like, so I love the Turkish environment, but at the same time, I miss that critical thinking that I developed in North America. So when, that, did, that, when did you personally start to be affected by the oppression of the Uyghurs? It, I, so in 2015, I came back to North America and I was doing my, uh, postgraduate studies at Harvard Law, and just life couldn't be kinder to my family. My brother got into this like very prestigious program that um, is sponsored by the State Department International Business Leadership Program that have produced many world leaders, including the likes of UN current Secretary General Antonio Guterres or Jacinda Ardern or Gordon Brown or Margaret Thatcher of the UK and all these people, because that is the kind of person he is, somebody who's a tech entrepreneur, philanthropist who dedicated his life for the greater good of the society and, and the entire world. So we were just happy in 2016. He came to the United States. We're just, you know, two siblings meeting in the U.S. Like, I mean, that is a blessing. But I had no idea that that would be a curse. Um, unfortunately, within, and this is 2016 spring, within weeks after returning from the United States, 
um, he disappeared into the shadows of the internment camps. Unfortunately, his visit coincided at a time when China was building these mass internment camps and targeting this particular ethnic groups and a broader Turkic culture, including Kazakh, Kyrgyz, and Uyghurs. So just by your ethnicity, or like my brother, excelling as a Uyghur, like you could be sent to the camps. And Emma, a lot of so people tell, would be you know, explain what happened. Did he go home and then there was like some knock at the door? What what actually happened? And that is the the mystery and, and the darkness about these camps. Like one, I mean, my brother lives, um, he has his own apartment, but he, he does come to like, you know, visit my parents uh, all the time, like for lunch because it's so close. And one day he didn't come to lunch. He was my, my mom was expecting and they had a call in the morning. Everything was good. And he just didn't come home. And the, like the next day, because, you know, he has his own apartment, as I said. So my parents wasn't thinking about, oh, like, you know, what happened to him? But the next day they went home. They, there's no trace of a person return like after work. He was just gone. Like, and initially my parents thought like, well, you know, and including them, they didn't even tell me. They couldn't even tell me that. Here I am in America and disclosing that information would be violating China's national security laws, even telling a sibling that, you know, her brother is missing. And, you know, many Chinese celebrities disappear. So I think initially we thought that he may return, maybe, but months stretch into years. And, you know, like just more and more people started to disappear. I have something called WeChat, which is kind of like a WhatsApp on my phone. So on my WeChat, I, I do have like, you know, friends from high school, college, all people start to unfriend me or they just start to disappear. And I, I start to like, you know, just develop the sense of anxiety, what's happening and just trying to like understand better, like this is almost like a cultural revolution 2.0. Like so has your brother been sentenced? Do you know where he is? We didn't find out almost four years later through a congressional inquiry. And, and this is how opaque the so-called justice system is, if there's any a sense of even like fairness in the legal system because you are put into these extrajudicial centers. There's no law, there's no trial, no access to lawyer or anything. You're just thrown into these dark cells. And 2020, I just like, the Chinese government gave one, I think two sentence description. He's been charged with inciting ethnic discrimination and serving 15 years sentence. And the, the irony is, He's the one who is the ethnic. He's the one who's systematically discriminated and oppressed, but according to Chinese law. And, you know, the opaqueness is even with this crime, normally, like, people get three years, but he gets 15 years. There is no law. Like, everything is so arbitrary. And there's no court record. There's no trial, no lawyer, just nothing. No court record can corroborate the Chinese government's narrative. Has, have your parents been able to visit him? Not, not at all until in May 2020 when I, um, and, you know, as our listeners can understand now why I transitioned from being this like a Wall Street lawyer to human rights lawyer. 
um, because of this very personal tragedy and in the pursuit of justice for my brother. In 2020 May, I started this very public advocacy and invited the world to rally behind my brother. And almost a year later of this relentless advocacy, um, finally my, my parents saw in some sort of like proof of life video. And almost after five years, and this is a cruelty, uh, that was levied against my family is that they've only been given access through a video call for three minutes. And in that three minutes video call, we're from Urumqi, which is the capital city of the region. My brother joined from Oxo, which is far from home. And that just goes to show there is a desire to further uproot him, to place him in an environment that is very unfamiliar to him as well, right? So and then when he joined the call, like he, he looked gone, he looked a shadow of his former self. And it was just heartbreaking. My parents were mentally so much prepared for this call after years of longing and agony and just desperation and frustration um, and just couldn't recognize their son. And he he's... Um, and then we later learned that since January 2019, he's been held in a solitary confinement. And what really struck me was that in between there was a second call and my parents were just blaming themselves. So my, my dad was like, I wish I can reverse the roles between you and me. You know, like I, I'm, a, I'm a father, I couldn't protect you. And he said, um, no, just be kind to everybody. And even including his torment, just be kind, spread my message. That's all I want from this world. And that's the kind of person he is that speaks to his character and and also like my parents and how resilient they are. I mean, just the daily torture of not knowing if their son is alive or not for the past few years. And for me as a sister has been very torturous. It's just constant anxiety looking at my phone and even me, like, you know, every morning I check up my WeChat to see if my parents are still alive because I'm so publicly advocating for his release and condemning the Chinese government for mass atrocities. Like, would they retaliate against my family? And I hate, like, always checking my phone and living that um, with that kind of anxiety. But that speaks to everybody, every Uyghur person right now. I think for generations we're going to be traumatized because of what what has happened to our loved ones. But, you know, I'm just so proud of my community. Um, I think often when we look at Hong Kong, we see this aspiration of democracies. People are fighting, like, you know, on the streets. And But when we look at the Uyghurs, we look at them this through singular lens of victimhood and say Uyghurs are victims of the 21st century modern concentration camps. But let's not forget, Uyghurs are exemplifying incredibly courageous resilience. I mean, even the fact that my brother hasn't seen outside world or not even heard a word from his family, he's still holding on to that hope and still like breathing, right? Like he, in that video call, like they said, he developed so much dark spots on his face, despite being a very light-skinned man. And so that's the kind of message that I really hope the world sees. Like, these are resilient people, and that's a different kind of heroism that we all should um, respect and fight for their dignity. Because every day when uh, my brother's life wastes away, our humanity as 
bystanders chains away with them. So Rehan, you know, it's very hard to live, obviously, with this uncertainty. But what are your plans for the future? <clears throat> you know, um, I've been thinking this question always linger on my mind. And one of the, you know, I, I'm somebody who always tries to see the silver lining when in the face of adversity and tragedy. And one thing I am really proud of was um, cultivating this like a new generation of what I call them agents of change. I've been working with a youth-based, um, youth organization based in the UK called Burst the Bubble. These are like teenagers from the age of between 15 to 18. And now they became this human rights advocates. And they made this like incredibly beautiful tribute to me and my advocacy for my brother and how I kind of made them a better advocates. And now like, you know, Burst Bubble exists because of my advocacy. And seeing that, like seeing the what I could achieve, like apparently I inspire people, um, I would still continue my human rights advocacy for sure and work with the youth. Like that's something that I'm so passionate about. I truly believe in the power of youth empowerment. Um, and like, you know, and I think there are many examples of like youth becoming like really champions for human rights, whether Greta Thunberg or Malala and, and others. So that is the one thing that I, I really want to devote to and continue to devote to. But the second thing is, as somebody who came from this like Wall Street a lawyer background and who's been a defense counsel and saw like, you know, corporations through both lens, one is um, corporations can be forced for good as long as we do have right regulations um, and then, you know, exercise oversight to invite them and make sure that they abide by the best business practices and so forth. But at the same time, as a human rights lawyer, I also saw the other side of the corporations that is a little bit dark. You know, unless it is tied to their economic interests, they can be enablers of the repression. And we're seeing that in the Uyghur forced labor exploitation. So using this, like my unique role, I hope to pioneer um, hopefully a change in terms of sort of like, you know, putting a framework where corporations can not only um, become this uh, sort of like, you know, best practice abiding entities, but also like entities that can actually indirectly influence authoritarian governments by using their economic influence and the market share to bring about change. And I do believe it can be done. And that's the kind of environment that I want to work within to be this like, you know, creating um, a place and a framework where we really have to marry this two practice business and a human rights regime and make sure that businesses are um, uphold to higher standards that we need to make sure that, you know, human rights due diligence is part of our broader practice so that um, good American companies with liberal values that have in the past be champions for other atrocities or racial injustice, even here in America, um, can do the same. Well, Rehan, I wish you all the best for the future. And I really hope that your brother is released soon. Thank you so much, Emma. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it.